All right, well, as I mentioned, as I began to read the scriptures, uh, we are now in the final week of Jesus' life. He's come into Jerusalem. He's shut down the work of the temple. He's pretty much declared the whole establishment dead on arrival, and it's time now to start over. And of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, all the religious establishment of the day, they object to this. They were very comfortable with their nominal cultural religion. They don't need some revivalist coming and shaking it up. And so they objected profoundly, and so they hate Jesus. Now once Jesus has entered Jerusalem, it's game on. His final work of dying on the cross was not the only time he does battle for our souls. The entire time of his final week of passion, if you want to call it that, is spent fighting the forces of the evil one, who just so happened to be the leadership of the church. And so the religious leaders send wave after wave to onslaught Jesus. They want to discredit him or to trap him, to ensnare him in such a way that they can either turn him over to the authorities or have him undermine his support at a popular level to such a degree that his ministry will cease being relevant. They want him gone. Now what happens though is they come and they ask a bunch of very insincere questions. I mean, when, when you read what the Pharisees and the Herodians say to him, oh, teacher, we know that you are wise and, and you speak truly the way of God. I mean, you could almost hear the sarcasm dripping. But isn't the irony that even though they were very insincere with what they were saying, nonetheless, the content of what they were saying is in fact true? And so it's the same with all their questions. They are asking very insincere questions, just like many who will object to the faith ask insincere questions. How often have, has someone come up to you to, rep, to present some objection they have to the Bible or to Christianity, and they will try to present some passage from the Bible? They, they couldn't care less what the Bible says, but they know you care. And so they try to create a conundrum for you and to stump you with what you supposedly believe. And that's what these religious leaders are here doing. And so Jesus, he takes their very insincere questions, but for the sake of those who have those same questions, but in a sincere form, he addresses them. And so while on one level you could say Jesus is simply battling the religious establishment and showing that he is superior to them, on the other hand, he's providing much needed instruction to his sheep who would otherwise be very confused by the pullings of various cultural and religious leaders. So Jesus uses this opportunity to teach us. And so he addresses the issue of the church's relationship to the state or politics. And he addresses the issue of the, the life in the now and, and the morality of the leveret marriage system and the next life, the resurrection, or spiritual matters in our relation to them. 
but then he does so within the context of having extrapolated for us what is the greatest commandment. And in so doing, he orients our faith, providing the basis by which he has just answered the first and the second questions. So many of you may have had similar inquiries, or maybe you've had similar thoughts, and I don't for one second believe that you are insincere like the Pharisees and the Herodians. But maybe you have had questions about the propriety of paying taxes to a government with whom you disagree. I mean, has that ever come up in your mind? When you see all the immoral things that our government does under any administration, is it right to pay taxes? Well, what's interesting is that in this first wave of attack, so the religious leaders are back there, and, and as, as I read this, I was thinking about um, the, the Battle of Richmond, actually, in the Civil War, where, where um, Grant, he was back there smoking a cigar as wave after wave of Union soldier uh, was marching up, getting destroyed by the Confederate defenses. And uh, he just sent them into the meat grinder, wave after wave, just getting destroyed, obliterated by the defense line. And this is what the religious establishment is doing. They're sending wave after wave up against Jesus, and he's demolishing them. It's awesome. You serve an awesome Lord. And so they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. You can read about it in verse 13. Now, Oftentimes you will see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, the Pharisees mentioned along with the Herodians. And they're placed together by the biblical author not to show that these two groups were arm-in-arm friends. No, it's to show their intense level of hatred of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were enemies. They hated each other. They were like complete opposites. The Pharisees were a religious party, a group to which you could have membership in, kind of like the Republicans or Democrats. You can join the party and and be a member of the party. Well, they were a very conservative party. They were very nationalistic. They despised Roman governance, but they begrudgingly went along because they were wise enough to understand that if you stand up and resist, you'll get squashed, okay? So they were conservative. They weren't quite as conservative as the zealots who, you know, let's, let's, it's better to die on your feet than be a slave. I mean, they, they were very, very resentful of Roman authority. The Pharisees hated it, but they went along. The Herodians were not really a party. They were a group of people who were characterized by a label, kind of like the label, the deplorables. You've heard that label recently, Right? the group of people who vote for Trump or whatever. It's just a label that's used to describe a group of people. Well, that's what Herodians is. It's a label to describe a group of people. These would have been people in the upper echelons of Jewish society who were big fans of the Herod family, the Herodian dynasty. Now, what the term signified was a full-on embracement of Greco-Roman culture. So to put them in the language of modern sociopolitics, they were like the flag-waving cheerleaders leading the freak parade, okay? They loved the culture of Greco-Roman society. They may have been born Jewish, but functionally their values and the way they lived, they were pagans. 
And so they had no problems at all with Rome and with Roman society. They loved it. So very socially liberal and very socially conservative, they hated each other. But yet, when it comes to Jesus, they're united in common cause against what they perceive to be a common foe. And so they come to him and they offer him that insincere flattery and they ask about paying the tax. Now, thanks to the gospel of Matthew, we know that the specific tax in question was this thing known as the poll tax or a head tax. Every male who was an adult had to pay it once a year. And the payment was one denarius. One denarius per adult male per year. Now, that may... Seems strange. What's a denarius? If you may recall that a denarius was basically a day's wage for a worker. Now, when I think about the tax rates of the ancient world, and I think about our founding fathers, you know, starting a rebellion and revolting over a three-cent tea tax, and, uh, and they, there was a revolt over this tax when Jesus was about 10 years old. And think about it. The tax rate was one day's wage per year. Their tax rate was nothing. And what do we have? A lot more than 1% tax rate. So understand that oftentimes it's not the percentage that matters. It's the principle. But it was a tax not on their possessions. It was not a tax on how much they earned, how much they owned. It was a tax on themselves. They had to pay a tax just to be. And so many Jews hated it. They likened it to slavery. That by paying this tax, we are slaves. We're saying that we and our lives belong to Rome. And it's a denarius. Oh, they hated the denarius. At the time, the Caesar was Tiberius. And if you Google what an image of the denarius looked like, it was a silver coin. And on the the front side, the head side, it had a picture of Caesar. And it said, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And they hated the name Augustus. Because Augustus wasn't really a name. It was a title conferred on Octavian by the Senate, which means venerable one. The name itself is a pretension to deity that they despised. And then the coin calls Augustus divine. And so Tiberius is the son of the divine Augustus. What does that make Tiberius? And the coin has an image of him. And then you flip it over to the backside. And Tiberius is sitting on a throne holding a spear and an olive branch. And in Latin it says Pontifex Maximus, chief or highest priest. In Latin, anyway, it's the same title that the Pope still used to refer to himself. So here you have a coin that is not only an idol, but the coin is like a propaganda piece advertising the Roman imperial cult. No self-respecting conservative Jew would have one in his possession. It's nasty. Interestingly, they ask if Jesus should pay the tax. And does Jesus have one in his possession? No. And what does Jesus say? Bring me one. And they're able to see the hypocrisy there. They're in full possession of it. 
They don't have any problems with it. They're just trying to cause problems. And they know that, or they believe that they have Jesus between the horns of a dilemma. You see, while the religious establishment would pay the tax no problem, the, Hero- the, the Pharisees didn't like paying the tax, but they did. Most of the people, the populist movement, the zealots that were starting to really become popular at the time, not only did they refuse to pay the tax, but they viewed anyone who did pay the tax as a traitor. And in the coming decades, they would actually start murdering their fellow Jews who they suspected of being in collusion with Rome. So at the popular level, if Jesus said, pay the tax, they knew that he would lose incredible popular support. On the other hand, what would happen if he said, no, don't pay the tax? Well, you better believe the next thing they would have done is turn tail and ran to the nearest Roman Roman centurion they could find and say, he's trying to incite rebellion. They have him, or so they think, between the horns of a dilemma. So, what Jesus does then is he absolutely confounds them. He answers a rather enigmic, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the things that are God's to God. Does Jesus say specifically what to do? Does he specifically say pay the tax? No. But he he kind of does, but not really. So you see how his answer really was. But what Jesus does here is it actually raises the level. Because they're thinking in terms of a specific tax that they found objectionable. And by his answer, Jesus reveals that there is no inherent and fundamental contradiction between being faithful to obey the laws of the state and being faithful to obey the commands of God. There is no inherent contradiction. You can give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is his. Now, Christians have struggled over the years because Government does bad things. People just typically don't like government. Even if you're liberal, you think the government's helping out the people who need to be protected against. And if you're conservative, you think that the government is restricting the people who need to be encouraged and it's promoting the people who need to be repressed. Typically speaking, people have a problem with government. But when it comes to the kingdom... Understand that the teaching of Jesus, that he does not flesh out here, he does not launch into a Romans 13 platform or a 1 Peter 2 explanation. He just lays the principle, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the apostles understand the implication of this message. Just a month and a half later, in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. And they're being ordered not to preach in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? No, we must obey God in this matter. You see, by giving the answer the way Jesus does, Jesus is affirming the conundrum that many times human societies, human governments have the tendency to require total and unequivocal devotion, and allegiance. 
I can assure you there are many organizations even within our own government where they expect absolute, unquestioning, unflinching obedience. And Jesus is saying, we are to give to Caesar what is his. But at the end of the day, there's a line in the sand at which something belongs to God. Now, in regard to this coin, this coin is Caesar's. It's his money. He can ask for it back. But everything this coin represents about the religious devotion that you must show to Caesar according to Caesar, we don't give that to Caesar. You give him your coin, you give him your obedience to the laws, but you don't give him your religious devotion. Christians have often struggled about paying taxes. And we think, oh, they go to support ungodly causes. Yes, they do. But there's a difference, brothers and sisters, between giving what is compulsory and voluntarily being party to something. When we are required to pay, Jesus is saying to pay. After all, we benefit from the state. The Pharisees, they benefited from the peace that Caesar brought. They benefited from the roads, the commerce, that made it possible at this time of year, which was just before the Passover, for all these all these. Uh, uh, sojourners to come and travel and pilgrims to make, their, uh, to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And just like in our own society, we benefit. We have a government that protects us from marauding bands of, of brigands. Okay? We have, we have a government that allows us to have recourse against other facets of the government. We have clean water, electricity, air that's safe to breathe, an environment where we can work without reasonable disruption of our persons. And so therefore, if Caesar wants taxes, it's our obligation to pay those taxes. That's what Jesus says. So implicit within his statement is a quit grumbling against the state. You Pharisees, you love to agitate against Rome. Because it's popular to do so. But don't you see, as we're going to learn in Romans 13, the state is a minister appointed by God to punish evil. You need a government. The minute a government collapses, all heck breaks loose. Look at Libya. We need the government. So quit agitating against it. Pay your taxes, obey the laws, because more often than not, the laws are not requiring you to violate the commandments of God. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. On the other hand, fundamentally, when Jesus says whose inscription and image is on this coin, and that's Caesar's, and then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God's what is God's, he's drawing attention to the fact when it comes to us, whose image do we bear? God's. So as created beings, we bear God's image. But then as new beings, as Christians, whose image are we being increasingly conformed to? The image of his son. So in a very real sense of all people, we Christians must understand that fundamentally, at the deepest rock bottom level, we belong to God. Our lives belong to God. 
And so, every human allegiance, every human commitment, every human priority must necessarily, therefore, be subjugated and secondary to our commitment to God. This has some profound implications. What it means for some is that the course of action that must be taken is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to bow to that idol. They're loyal subjects of the king, but the king crosses a line in saying, you must worship this, and they say no. God had not made any promises to jump into that fiery furnace and save them. Read their response. He's able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship this image. And so there are many of our brothers and sisters who must face the wrath of man because they will not bow the knee and give to man what belongs to God. That may be your course. I hope not. It is plausible that for some of us then, we have to say to our employer, you know what, I value the company, but I'm not going to overbill. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to commit fraud in the company's name just to increase profits for you while I sacrifice my integrity and my standing before my God. It may mean that we have to tell our son or our daughter or our grandchild, I love you, but I cannot support this lifestyle choice. I cannot condone this decision that you are making because it is wickedness in the sight of God. It may mean that you may have to tell your spouse, I love you, but you are asking me to sin. I cannot do that. It may mean children. Yes, I have heard of children whose parents try to raise them to lie and steal for them. And it may mean, Mom, Dad, I love you, but I'm not going to commit sin for you. Because God comes first. But Ben, that will come at heart. That, that hurts. That's my family. Who do you belong to? We belong to God. And yes, we may have to endure the rage of an employer. We may have to endure the rage of an angry spouse or family member or parent or child or friend or even the anger and rage of the state. And you may be tempted in that moment to bow the knee and yield. Remember the words of Jesus, though, in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but afterwards do nothing. Fear the one who can first kill the body and then cast your soul into hell. We belong to God. And so we obey the state when we can, which is more often than not. Okay, We'd like to create issues where we think we can, but more often than not, we can. But at the end of the day, we belong to God. And so they leave. Then the next wave attacks, and it's the Sadducees. 
And they asked this question, showing their contempt for the notion of a resurrection. If they wanted to ask a sincere question, they could have done it with the much more realistic scenario where, let's say there's a wife and she's married and he dies and she, she marries again and she dies. You know, being married twice is, is plausible. It happens all the time. But they're engaging in that reductio ad absurdum tactic where they think the conclusion of a resurrection is stupid. And in order to accentuate how absurd it is, they use a ridiculous argument so that way you can see in their mind how stupid the idea was in the first place. That if there's seven men involved, it's going to be hopelessly ridiculous to figure out whose husband she would be. And the irony with these guys is when Jesus responds to them, he mentions angels, that they'll be like angels. Sadducees didn't believe in angels, even though they're in the Bible. And the Sadducees only believed in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They rejected the authority of the rest of the Old Testament. They only accepted the Torah. And wouldn't you know it, as a point of fact, most of the Old Testament references for the resurrection come in books that are after the Torah. But Jesus wants to show them that they don't even believe the part of Scripture they claim to believe. So he points them to Exodus 3, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And God says, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the thing there is, God is not the God of anything that's dead, because God is able to have a relationship with them in the present tense. He has a relationship, present tense, with them, even though their bodies are in the ground. So what that means, fair Sadducee, is that the soul does not extinguish out upon death. The soul lives on after death, and it awaits the resurrection of the body. That is how God is able, present tense, to have a relationship with someone who's in the ground. They're wrong about the fact of the resurrection because they know neither the scriptures that they claim to believe, nor do they know the power of God to raise something from the ground. But then he challenges the assumption of the question. And it's an assumption that many of us share as well. The assumption behind the question is that the afterlife, the resurrection has a great deal of continuity with this life. That the situation in the afterlife is pretty much like it is now, with the exception that it's more idealized and that there's no sin in the way, so no one's irritating me anymore. But pretty much all the relationships and all the situations that existed now are going to exist then. This is why it's a question of whose wife will she be? Because I'm married to her now, when I cross over to the other side, am I still going to be married to her? And what Jesus does is he demonstrates that there is a remarkable degree of discontinuity in the resurrection. He denies that there's marriage. We are going to rise and be like the angels now, this does not mean that we're going to be androgynous beings. No, we'll still have our masculinity and our femininity. But if you think about it for a moment, the institution of marriage was created precisely for the need of fellowship because fellowship was imperfect in the created order and for procreation 
neither of which you need anymore in an eternal state where no one's dying anymore and we have perfect relationship with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what happens then is as we raise, every relationship is transformed. We'll still know each other. Paul alludes to as much. But we will relate to each other as brother and sister in Christ. And the old priorities will be gone and we will be so wrapped up in our awe and grandeur of the risen Savior, the lion and the lamb, that we're not thinking about who was our wife and which one was she. We're thinking about the greatness of God. If you think about it, far too often, myself included, we think about heaven primarily in terms of people. I can't wait to see my mom again. I can't wait to see my grandparents again. And it's okay to think about that. But remember, in heaven, the primary point is that we are reconciled together And arm in arm, we are praising the Lamb together. Because He is the one who fills every need and satisfies every hurt. Your hurts and your tears are not dried and consoled by being reunited with your loved ones. They're consoled and your tears are dried and your heart is warmed by gazing upon the Son and His glory. That is our hope. And so Jesus silences the scribes, or the Sadducees. And then the scribe comes. Now he appears to have been intrigued by Jesus' answers. And so he asks the question about what's the most important law. And the scribes were famous for this. They would sit around debating of the 613 laws, which one is the most important? Oh! And so Jesus weigh in on this debate. And weigh in he does. And then he he, he, does a, he gives them a freebie. He offers them a second greatest commandment. He points them to the Shema in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. And he points to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And the rest of the commandments rest on these. And your ESV doesn't quite capture the response of the scribe very well. The the old NIV did it a little better when he said, well said. His response is exclamatory. He's impressed by Jesus' answer. And Jesus responds by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus understands that the principal commandment of Scripture is to love God. To desire him above all other things. To desire him with our full intensity, with every one of our faculties, for the duration of our lives. And that any sin that we commit in relation to God comes from a want of love. Secondarily, the commandments to love our neighbor stem from us failing to love them as we love ourselves. Jesus summarizes the two tables of the law. The Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, relate directly to our relationship with God. The last six commandments relate directly to our relationship with other people. Jesus summarizes them into two commandments. And what scares and terrifies the religious leaders, and that's what's behind this word, no one dared ask him any questions, was that not only has Jesus effectively silenced them and their criticisms, Not only is he on the verge of converting from among their number, 
But by their questioning, he's now publicly teaching in such a way that he's reorienting the very foundation and nature of their religion. He's stating that the focus and thrust of their faith is love. And if all the commandments flow to and from the commandment to love, then this becomes more important than the rituals in which they're engaged. And so they're terrified at what he's doing, undermining the very foundation of the religious edifice they've built, which is built upon formal services. And he wants you to know it's all about love. Now, in conclusion, notice what Jesus has done. In every case, when there's a question, he elevates it to a higher plane. Is it not our tendency, when we're looking at issues, to get lost in the weeds, so to speak? We look down and we, and we lose sight of the big picture. And what Jesus does in each of these cases is he pulls back. There's a bigger issue at stake here. It's not just, is it okay to pay this tax? It's, you can be a faithful citizen of the state and still be a faithful Christian. It's not just whose wife will she... No, no. In the resurrection, things are different. It's not just which commandment do I follow. They're all summed up in the command to love. How often would our lives and relationships be better if we looked at the big picture and evaluated what's going on in light of the big picture? And that's what Jesus invites us to do. Because he indeed is Lord. Let's pray.